and welcome to these audio didactic recordings from Project Echo, West Vic PHN Hub. All right, we'll get underway. Um, welcome to Project Echo. This is the West Vic PHN Hub COVID-19 Echo Network Series 7, Session 4. It's Thursday, the 28th of October, 2021. Welcome back. This session's titled Understanding COVID Positive Care Pathways, Part 3, Community Care Pathways and Remote Patient Monitoring. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the lands and waterways from which we're all zooming in from today. We pay our respects to elders both past and present and commit to working together in the spirit of mutual understanding, respect and reconciliation and I wish to extend that respect to any Aboriginal people connecting in today. Well welcome back to our COVID um, Care Pathways series. In our previous two sessions our didactic present, um, presentations covered risk stratification and clinical assessment and we discussed COVID cases as they related to these aspects of the patient care journey. In this morning's session we progress onto the management phase of the pathways, focusing on remote monitoring this week and next week we'll feature therapeutic interventions. In our GP case discussion, we'll follow the key, we'll consider the key question: What is the role of the GP and primary care team alongside these hospital-led community monitoring pathways? So let's get underway. I'm Bianca Forrester, GP, and I'll be facilitating today's meeting alongside Echo team Gemma Misbach and Fiona Quigley. Thanks to Zach Hollow for uh, note taking and Jade Buller for audio and video production. Uh, welcome to the participants of um, the West Vic regions and also any um, service from outside of the region. Thanks for introducing yourself. Thank you in the chat, letting us know a bit about your name, your name role and region and uh, anything else you'd like to share. Thank you. Please feel free to network and um, have chats in the chat. Uh, we use it quite a lot. Um, and you know uh, a bit more about, we, you, you're probably very familiar with our ed etiquette. We'd love to see you on camera. So do feel free. This is a community of practice, uh, very different to many other the meeting so if you are in the position to light up your camera um that'd be lovely uh what have we got on for today um well we're going to start with dr kate graham gp and clinical editor of health pathways and the covid clinical advisor to the west vic phn providing an update on all things vaccines public health guidance and covid care pathways um miss linda govern's going to go next and linda's the regional senior manager of west vic phn and she's going to provide the phn update uh, we've, we're joined this morning by Dr. Will Norton. He's the medical lead, um, Bowen Public, uh, Southwest Public Health Unit, infectious diseases physician. And he'll talk to us this morning about COVID home monitoring. Our panel for discussion, we're going to welcome back Dr. Caroline Bartolo, infectious diseases physician at, the, at Bowen Health and Bowen Southwest Public Health Unit, and also Ballarat um, uh, Hospital uh, Health Services. We've, um, we're delighted to have a case presentation by Dr. Deb Harley, GP. Oh, I'm sorry, Deb, we didn't pop your um, title in there. Did you want to bring yourself off mute and give yourself a, a quick title? Let, let us know where, you, where you're practising from at the moment. Uh, from With regards to the case today? Both. Yeah, both and your, and your home clinic. Oh, okay. I'm a GP from um, Warren Ponds in Geelong. I have been for 30 years. And uh, the case I was taken from my first day as... Um, a medical practitioner working from the public health unit, triaging patients that have um, tested positive and working Thank out the medical risk. Thank you. And uh, we're going to invite you all to, again, yeah, light up your cameras, come off mute, put some things in the chat for our all-case discussion um, in the second half hour. So with that, I'll hand over to you, Kate Graham. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Gemma, I'll just get you. Yep. We had a pre-submitted question um, over the week, um, which is just about vaccination post-COVID and return to work. Um, so in terms of return to work, uh, 
the clearance is now at 14 days post um, sort of the diagnosis date. Um, some workplaces do have um, their own policies in relation to this. So we know that some health services do require an extra sort of few days um, around this timing, um, but definitely no clearance tests. Um, and I'll just reinforce that again, please do not make people have clearance tests uh, because it creates great headaches um, within public health units when they get another positive case result to follow up and match against existing cases. Um, so in terms of vaccination, one of the things um, that we wanted to reinforce is that you are okay to be vaccinated the moment that you are recovered from your acute illness. Um, so this is absolutely fine advice to follow in general practice so that once somebody has completed their 14 days of isolation, they are okay to be vaccinated. Um, they are able to wait up to six months post-acute COVID infection in terms of protection against infection. Um, if that is the case, then they are eligible for a medical exemption and that sort of requires the form to be submitted under AIR um, and that is a valid exemption. Um, and so that's sort of where you need to provide them with that exemption so that they are able to enter any of the places that vaccinated people are able to enter. Um, and that's one of the things that is written into sort of all the legislation around vaccinated people. Um, and that as somebody who has had COVID within that six month period, you are quite safe um, to be entering in those places in terms of that vaccination um, risk. Um, in terms of sort of what the current guidance is around infection, there is some sort of debate in terms of sort of the absolute sort of uh, primary close contact definition and when you're a primary close contact uh, post-COVID and when you're subject to those restrictions at the moment. At present, it is still within that eight weeks post-acute COVID that you're sort of not considered to be a primary close contact. There's guidance being worked on internally at the Department of Health to sort of clarify that at the moment, because although um, sort of all the vaccination guidance says you're okay um, in terms of immune protection for up to six months. Uh, the public health guidance sort of says eight weeks um, at present. So we're sort of working on that internally at the Department of Health currently. So um, vaccination passports, you're not going to necessarily get that little tick of your vaccination if you haven't had both doses of vaccination, obviously, but you do need that medical certification um, to be submitted for the medical exemption if you haven't had that. So in terms of other vaccination news uh, for the week, boosters has been the main thing with the TGA approving boosters for people over the age of 18 for a third dose um, as a booster six months after you've completed your primary course. And that is with Pfizer um, as the approved booster dose at this point. Um, there's more evidence of Pfizer as a booster dose if you've had Pfizer as your primary course, um, but it doesn't matter what your primary course has been, it will still be Pfizer as your booster dose at this stage. Um, there's 
expected to be guidance coming out very soon from ATAGI in relation to how we actually deliver that in general practice. Um, but I would expect to sort of start receiving queries from people in general practice in relation to this. It's likely to be that first range of essential workers, um, aged care workers who are eligible in the 1A category um, and you're over 75. So they're the group that we need to start thinking about. Um, and in children, their preliminary data for the five to 12s has been sort of submitted. Um, so there may be something coming out for that soon. So that's something to sort of have in our planning for potentially the next few months. So next slide, Gemma. Uh, public health measures and all those kind of things. Today, there is a thunderstorm asthma alert just to throw that into the mix of chaos that we have in our systems at the moment. So in general practice, just keeping that in the back of our minds when we're getting people calling up breathless, um, just maybe thinking about that for your triage and phone calls to reception that may be making people, even if you don't have a history of asthma, if you have a history of hay fever, advising people to use Ventolin, um, and getting that in place really quickly, rather than making people wait to go and get tested first if they've got some Ventolin around, using that as a safety measure uh, before sort of presenting to emergency, waiting to sort of get a testing appointment later in the day, use the Ventolin primarily first as a safety measure. Um, contact assessment and management guidance has been updated. Um, if you've seen the matrix, it also has been updated. Vaccinated contacts for non-household contacts. Um, if you've had two doses of the vaccine, you now only have to quarantine for seven days. Um, and this is really important guidance. You may see that some of the areas in the matrix seem to have changed quite significantly, that you know, in primary care, you may find that sort of some of the timings seem quite significant we were looking at it yesterday and so most of our patient consults will fall into a high risk zone um, so you sort of look down but ultimately when you actually look through it and compare it to the previous version it doesn't make a difference in terms of where you ultimately end up in terms of the outcomes for where you were um, if you're wearing surgical masks versus n95 um, what is really important to think about is the fact that only the people who end up in the red zone now are the people who are going to be under public health orders. So everyone in the orange zone, yellow zone, green zone, they're the people whose testing is going to be under the requirements of the general practice. So in terms of your staffing, they're the people whose testing is going to be sort of managed and looked after by the staff of the general practice. So if you want your staff to return to work, um, you'll be the ones checking those testing results to make sure that they're safe to return to work. So that's a key sort of change. And it's happening across all workforces um, in the state um, that it's becoming more a workplace requirement rather than a Department of Health requirement as we move to a more vaccinated population. VCE students, um, as that's one of the categories that I'm looking after at the Department of Health in my other role, um, it's really, really a priority group at the moment. We want all VCE student testing to be a P1 marked test. 
Um, VCE students are actually able to attend exams if they're a primary close contact. So they're a group that if you find that they're a primary close contact, they are still able to attend exams. And this is really important information um, to be able to convey to any VCE students that you come in contact with. The directions have been changed for close contacts to make that really clear. Um, priority support line for GPs, don't forget that. Rapid antigen tests are coming in place as of November 1st. So that's another thing to think about for practices and how you're actually going to put that in place um, in terms of maybe screening questions as people are entering their practice, checking to see if they have done a test at home. Because if they have a positive test at home, you have to actually report that. You have to follow it up with a PCR test um, because you don't want people who have tested positive at home to enter the practice either. Um, and so there are things to think about and maybe in future thinking about how you're going to integrate testing in your practice if that is something that is important for you in areas of high prevalence or high risk environments where you may have patients that you're seeing for longer duration that put you into a high risk zone. So next slide. Um, Safer Care Victoria have launched their COVID positive care pathways, which is their standardised care pathway. It's been adopted in metropolitan regions. Um, it's how people are managed in a model of care. Um, we don't have sort of quite the same models. We've got um, the Barber model, which we'll talk about, um, and Southwest model. Uh, there's a different model across in Ballarat Health Services, and we're developing different models in some of the smaller health services as well. Uh, but it's just something that you may hear about. But um, effectively, uh, it's sort of just talking about the passage that somebody goes through from testing positive through to discharge and clearance and how people are stratified. So the stratification and things like that, we will talk about soon um, through today. So I'll just go on to the next page. Uh, COVID care resources we talked about last week. So don't forget to check them out. Next page. Um, health pathways, the COVID positive care in the community should be live this morning. It's not live right now. I just checked, unfortunately, uh, but later this morning it should go live. And what that is, is it's a sort of generic positive care in the community page. We've got the Barwin information up on there as links. We will put in other pathway information there, but it does have clinical guidance to sort of take you through any care that you may be providing for positive patients in general practice who fall into that low risk category, um, just to sort of guide you through some of the telehealth conversations that you might be having through from that first telehealth sort of diagnosis through to sort of clearance. So that's all from me. Sorry, there was a lot to get through this morning. There was a lot to get. There's been a lot of changes. Thank you so much, Kate. So great to have you um, providing us all of that um, information. Over to you, Linda. Uh, thanks, Bianca, and good morning, everyone. Um, so, yeah, if you can see the data table there, we're seeing some really positive numbers in regards to vaccine re vaccination rates in our region. Um, from, so this is from earlier this week, taken from the AIR data. Um, we now have 95% of every LGA in our PHN except Ararat sitting at 94.6, having received their first vaccination, but we expect Ararat will have pushed over 95% today. I just haven't got the updated numbers there. Across Australia, I might get you to go to the next slide too. Thanks, Gemma, thanks. 
um, across Australia, the rates for West Vic PHN are also leading the way. You can see us sitting there looking pretty good. Um, whilst within the West Vic PHN subregion, we still have some pockets where further effort is needed to increase vaccination rates. And for the LGAs with uh, lower rates, we are looking at options for further targeting these areas. And I just put a star in that table there. You can see general practice in the vaccination hubs really uh, neck and neck in um, providing vaccinations and also really interesting and, and good to see pharmacies starting to make a bit of an impact on uh, vaccine provision as well. Next slide. Thanks, Gemma. Um, so we'll look at our First Nations data. You can see that it's also increasing. Um, most, not all areas yet sitting at 80%. Wimmera Grampians, there's still some work to be done there um, across the whole region. There's still some more effort to be done. Um, but just some examples of some of the things that are happening in the Wimmera Grampians region for our First Nations population. Just pop some examples there. The Grampians PHU primary um, health, public health unit team are doing some really a targeted work in supporting Aboriginal communities to access uh, vaccinations. Um, ATCHOs have also been receiving some funding from VATCHO to incentivise COVID vaccinations. Um, we're encouraging um, ATCHOs in our area also to take up the EOI opportunities um, that we've had out, as well as just putting in a quality improvement activity to assist some of the practices to, to really identify and reach out to their Aboriginal patients and to encourage vaccinations as well. Um, over there on the right of the slide, you can see uh, Ballarat Health Services has also started up an in-home vaccination service across the Grampians region, a, a really good um, flexible in-home service as well. So if you've got clients, patients that you think are need um, in-home vaccination can't get to a centre, it's a really good resource to have in, our, in the Grampians local area. Um, and also from the PHM perspective, we still have um, in our second round of the EOIs, the in-home COVID-19 vaccinations, we've had eight practices pick that up. And I think we've got three in the Grampians, Ballarat Grampians region and five in the Barwon Southwest region at the moment. And just um, encouraging some more practices to take that opportunity as well as the maximising vaccination delivery um, EOI as well. So they closed today. They were resent out on Monday if you're looking for a, a little bit of extra funding for some work that you're already doing. Going forward, um, as we move from a focus on vaccination to COVID care pathways and other measures to support general practice as we adjust to living with COVID in our communities from the Commonwealth, we're expecting shortly, confirmation shortly, a range of resources and funding to further support general practice and COVID care pathway activity across our region. So stay tuned for that. Um, and lastly, just an update around aged care, um, residential aged care and booster or third doses. Again, waiting on an announcement from, from the department around what that will look like. Uh, it sounds like it'll be in some way similar to what we were seeing in the first, first round of vaccinations for aged care. So again, just waiting on some confirmation. So that's all. Thanks, Bianca. Thank you, Linda. Uh, will Norton, hello. Hi, I'll just uh, share my screen. Two seconds. Uh, and are you, is it possible to pop your camera on? Yeah, of course. Two oh, seconds. Oh, great. Be nice to meet you. So everyone, um, nice to meet you. Will, Will, this is Project Echo. Um, this crew have been, uh, you know, a lot of them have been getting together since um, back last March weekly. We've, you know, sometimes we take breaks. Um, and, uh, you, and Will is uh, infectious diseases. You physician or reg, Will? Uh, I'm a registrar. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, at Barwon. So lovely to have you in the region. Um, and so this morning, Will's going to uh, present a presentation on um, 
monitoring. So when you're thinking about those care pathways, as we discussed, we've covered some of those elements of risk stratification. We've covered clinical assessment in our previous um, sessions. So this is part three of the pathways. And in this one, we're going to be focusing on remote monitoring. Um, all right. How are you feeling? Will, are you ready to yeah, share? Good. My video is just not coming up. Is, is it sharing screen at the moment or not? Yes, we can see. We can see the um, slide deck. See the slide deck, great. Yep. So we should hopefully, get, unfortunately, I don't know that my video will be able to come That's up. That's fine, no problem. Thank um, you. All right. So, so look, as mentioned, I'm one of the medical leads down at Bowen Southwest. So I'll be talking briefly about kind of uh, COVID home monitoring that that we're using in our area and and putting it into some context of what our key interventions are to reduce risk for patients coming into hospital. And um, I see I've been listening into what's been discussed this morning, so we'll race through some of it because it sounds like you've already been. Um, uh, been running through some of what I thought I might be talking about, but in, in brief, we'll talk about kind of what our kind of role is in COVID monitoring, the changing epidemic and its impact on risk stratification, what available leaders we have to reduce risk of hospitalization and, and kind of what monitoring really looks like and what, what are the key things that we're monitoring for. Uh, I understand that Dr. Jeff Urquhart presented on our remote patient monitoring program and an overview of how it works, what key comorbidities we gather to decide on whether patients are in high risk, medium risk or low risk monitoring pathways. And this is changed slightly since that was presented. And that's gonna be kind of part of what I'll be presenting about is why that's changed and what's, what's um, and the rationale for that. So I, I suppose, you know, this is the thing is that it is a changing epidemic and where we had the first and second wave, the third wave is one that is very different. And one of the key differences is with the availability of vaccination, we're moving into a younger and younger population of those who've yet to have access to vaccine. And we've had people where we've had interventions that can change the, the natural history of coronavirus. So at present, as of uh, earlier this week, there's only a small proportion of the total number of cases that are in hospital and in ICU, though obviously a significant impact on those hospitals functions. And so I, I suppose briefly, I wanted to talk about some of the available levers that we have to reduce our risk of our patients ending up in hospital. Uh, noting that, you know, once you have coronavirus, you're on a pathway that's been decided. So, so there's only so many interventions we can do to change your outcome. And I suppose this is really demonstrated here by, by the differences in hospitalization between New South Wales and Victoria at the time that their outbreaks commenced. So New South Wales in the uh, kind of red, uh, um, it, with the red line and the orange line essentially mirroring it of who's been hospitalized. And then a couple of months later, well, about a, a month or so later, Victoria beginning its outbreak, significantly ahead on vaccination. And as you can see in the blue line where the seven daily average is, is much higher than our percent hospitalized. So vaccination has a key role to reducing our hospitalization rate. And I think that's, you know, this is again data, data from early October where we look at as, as a proportion of our population at that point, we're only at about the 45% fully vaccinated rate, 23% first, and it, with an additional 23% first dose. But we're seeing that all of the population that are ending up in hospital are this non-vaccinated cohort. And that, uh, sorry, get all of those who are, predominantly those who are diagnosed are our non-vaccinated cohort and those who are ending up in hospital are, our under-vaccinated cohort with only a small proportion of those who've been fully vaccinated. Uh, and this is kind of demonstrated in the available data where we know that uh, those who are vaccinated versus unvaccinated, you have a significantly reduced risk regardless of age. 
with a with a greater impact at the at the high level, which is why that that group were prioritised early in the early in the epidemic. Uh, moving into citrovimab, which I understand will be discussed further next week. Citrovimab is one of our available levers once diagnosis has been made. This is a fully humanised monoclonal antibody that's directed against one of the conserved epitopes of the receptor domain of SARS-CoV. The idea being that behind that highly conserved area is that it will be uh, active across different strains. It's a neutral and it's a neutralizing antibody that has efficacy that's been against all the available strains. And the important thing is this has an 85% reduction in the need for hospitalization over 24 hours of death due to any con cause compared with placebo with, without any significant ad adverse events. There's a small risk alongside any monoclonal antibody of allergy. And so other than that, um, uh, so that performance, that's part of our um, consent procedure is to discuss that, but, but otherwise, you know, it is something that um, is generally available for, for those who are meeting these particular set of inclusion criteria. So one of the key things here being that you need to be diagnosed early in your coronavirus course for it to be an effective therapy. You need to be well, so prior to commencing oxygen therapy, and you need to be either under vaccinated or immunosuppressed with the additional risk factors um, present on the right that, that are kind of the ones that we've already kind of discussed and that, that Jeff discussed last week. Um, and importantly from our local data here at, here at Barwon Health, we would have had citrovimab uh, administered to kind of well over 40 patients and thus far only one patient admitted to hospital. So, so we've seen the kind of same as the data that was available in the studies where there's been a significant reduction in people coming into hospital. So I think they're kind of two key levers for us to look at actively reducing our risk of um, our patients ending up in hospital. And that's also then been reflected in our monitoring guidelines where we're recognizing that those who are vaccinated are at significantly reduced risk of ending up in hospital and as such are able to be monitored less frequently, freeing us up to monitor those who are at the higher risk, the unvaccinated cohort and those with significant comorbidities. And so this is where our, um, where our risk stratification is, is at present, is in recognising that, you know, not everybody is the same and especially the unvaccinated and vaccinated are, are different. And um, so briefly talking about home, they're kind of, what are they kind of, I think the key nuts and bolts of home monitoring is, Really, it's, it's, it's recognizing that it's a spectrum of illness that ranges from asymptomatic infection through to acute respiratory distress syndrome and multi-organ dysfunction. But that the vast majority, more than 80% will have a mild, mild course, especially if you've been vaccinated, that may be as high as 95%. And in fact, we've seen that in the Victorian outbreak, ultimately we have an approximately 3% hospitalization rate. So, so you can see that you know, the spectrum of illness when, when we're diagnosing early, have vaccination and have access to citrovimab is, is, is um, significantly reduced. So really, I think that the kind of key bits for monitoring are, are evaluation of dyspnea. So whilst mild dyspnea is common, it, I suppose one of the key things that we're looking for is this trajectory of dyspnea post the onset. As studies from uh, kind of early in the piece have demonstrated that progression to ARDS occurs with an approximately median, with a median duration of 2.5 days after onset of dyspnea. So once dyspnea has been established, it's important to monitor closely to, to work out if there is going to be risk of deterioration. And uh, again, something that I'm sure that everybody has 
uh, seen seen plenty of, and this is just recognizing that in general, the first week of the illness is actually not the not the at risk period, but but rather the the second week in which hospitalization is much more common and, and ARDS can develop. So kind of that from seven days onwards is around about the time frame where our population may become liable to be admitted to hospital. And so what we're doing operationally is assessing the severity of dyspnea to help us to work out whether somebody needs additional monitoring in our low risk group who aren't already having uh, oxygen saturations monitored uh, to allow us to deliver devices so that, so that we can assess whether or not there needs to be additional um, measures put in place. And, and so a, a key component of our uh, remote monitoring program, especially in those at moderate to high risk is, is to involve them, uh, is to, uh, sorry, provide them with uh, an oximeter, um, hypoxia being an independent uh, predictor for a worse outcome from coronavirus. So oxygen saturations are certainly worth monitoring, especially in those with, with those relevant risk factors. And, uh, uh, you know, remembering though, that there is this small proportion of patients predominantly in, el in the elderly cohort that may have silent hypoxia. So, so they should hopefully be caught in our, um, uh, by our risk stratification tool to, to ensure that they're more, more, more closely monitored. And in general, our, our target for review, be that via initially telehealth or by, via review in the emergency department, is if oxygen saturations drop below 95%. Noting as well that clinical clinician discretion is still relevant. So, you know, if there's this alterations in mentation or other signs of hypoperfusion, they're people that we would independently of their oxygen saturations be, be organizing urgent review. So I think in summary, what I was trying to demonstrate is that, you know, this changing epidemiology where we're heading into a younger unvaccinated population, the younger cohort being at lower risk, but not at no risk. It's all about identifying those who are candidates for intervention monitoring them appropriately and then referring them for urgent review as required. Our key levers that are available are vaccination citrovimab and remote majority and, and in remote monitoring the majority of people will remain well with our key um, criteria for monitoring being dyspnea and hypoxia and that was kind of the key things that I wanted to talk about. Thank you Will. Well, that almost concludes our didactic content for this morning. We won't bring you the recording of the case discussion, but come along and join the discussion next week. We'll leave it this morning with the PHN update. Um, all right. Thank you, everyone. We, we probably have run out of time. I would have loved to have heard Caroline and Will's thoughts um, again, but we are on 8.31. So I think we'll close it down. Thanks very much for coming um, today, Will. It's really nice to meet you. Um, and thanks for being involved in our discussion, Caroline. Thanks again. And we'll see you again next week. Um, thanks, Deb, for bringing a case. Um, I'm just trying to think, have I got a case for next week? I don't have a case for next week. So if you've got a case, um, bring us a case. It's going to be about uh, a, a sessions about Citrovimab, but let's hear about anything COVID related. Um, scan you know what to do qr code evaluate the session let us know how we did it how we did and if you'd like to see anything um, different and also you can pre-submit questions by jumping on this link so even if you want to skip through and just pre-submit a question we'll process the chat we'll send out the notes the video the podcast um, share it with your friends and let's be start building familiarity with citrovimab um, amongst the gp cohort um, who knows who it might help so i think that's something that we need to start really becoming familiar with so thanks everyone we'll see you next week um, take care out there and uh ventil and ventil and ventil and thunderstorm asthma thunderstorm asthma <laughs> i hope my husband didn't ride in today <laughs> take care see you
Thanks for listening and come along and join the discussion next week. Google Westfic PHN Project Echo COVID-19 Pandemic Response Network. And you'll find a way to register. By registering, we'll send you reminders each week and we'll let you know what's coming up in the sessions. And you'll also receive our resource pack that includes notes, podcasts, webinars, slide decks, and any resources mentioned in the discussion. Thanks for listening.